it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, November 21st, 2022. A brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for being here. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. This program airs 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And if you can't catch it all as we air live or as we air across the country, we do have a podcast. It's free of charge every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. That's GuyBensonShow.com. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And today we are very proud to welcome a new affiliate here at the Guy Benson Show. Joining the radio family, it is KOKC, 1520 AM and 95.3 FM, talk radio's new generation in Oklahoma City and out there in the Sooner State. They are still recovering from, what do they call it, Bedlam Weekend in college football, and they are easing right into the Guy Benson Show here on this Monday. Welcome one and all out there in Oklahoma. We are absolutely thrilled to have you on board. Here's our lineup for today on the program. U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, he's going to be here. Some questions for him, including some questions about the race that he is currently focused on down in Georgia, where Herschel Walker is locked in this runoff battle with Raphael Warnock with a Senate seat on the line. That's December 6th. We will get Senator Cruz's read on that and a few other issues coming up later this hour. In our next hour, Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, he's going to be here. I want to ask him about the special prosecutor that they've now appointed to the Trump investigation. I guess what the attorney general has decided, Merrick Garland, is because Donald Trump has announced that he's running for president already – for his potential 2024 opponent to officially be ultimately the boss of an investigation into Trump, that would look bad. So they are at least creating the impression of independence with this special counsel. What does Andy make of that? We will ask him. And in our final hour today, Bill Malugin down at the border in Texas, as he so often is, I want to get to the latest on the border crisis. There are actually quite a few developments. And we're going to keep covering it. I wasn't just talking about the border crisis leading up to the election because I thought it might be helpful to Republicans. And in some respects, it probably was not as helpful as I would have liked because I think it's a disgrace what's happening down there. But it is a huge news story that will continue to unfold. And very few news outlets want to talk about it. But we will here on the show. And Bill Malugin is the best in the business on that front. And he joins us in our third hour here today. Now, I have to tell you this. I was tempted to maybe play some audio sound bites for all of you to open the show from this big conference out in Las Vegas over the weekend with the I believe it was the Republican Jewish Coalition hosting a whole cavalcade, a cattle car of potential 2024 Republican presidential candidates 
who were either there or addressing the organization via satellite or via video. And all the names that you might expect, or at least most of them, were present. And there were people going over all of the utterances of all these Republicans with a fine-tooth comb. Are they giving any clue about their intentions, so on and so forth? Oh, look at these people taking shots at Trump. Here's Trump's video. Oh, Ron DeSantis was the keynote. What about this person who wasn't going to run? Maybe she is. There's all this stuff, all this chatter all this noise about it. And I will confess to you, as someone who is, let's be frank, a political addict, it's part of the job, I can't really turn it off because it's not good for my performance here on the air if I'm just stepping away from politics. And so, of course, when the next election is already underway and people are already having these conversations, my ears sort of perk up and my interest is peaked. That being said, even with that whole extended caveat in place, it is too early, even for me. I cannot summon the interest to start getting into a bunch of regular, daily political analysis about an election that is two years away. I can't do it yet. We're going to get there in due time? Yes, of course. Do I have some thoughts about it? Yes, obviously, it's my job to have thoughts. But just every single day coming to you with the latest little spin on something that's 700 plus days away, I just I can't do it to you. I can't do it to myself. I can't. Plus, I'd just be saying, at least for now, because it's all a big waiting game for everyone except for Trump. Trump's in. You know my thoughts on that. If you're new to the program, go back and listen to the free podcast or read some of what I've written. It's not terribly subtle. I put it right out there so you all know. I'm not trying to hide the football or manipulate you. I just like to be honest. If you agree or disagree, that's fine. That's the point, actually. We can agree. We can disagree. We can do so. We can move on. But it's just too much. So I'm not going to do that. And part of the reason I'm not going to do it is because the current – election, and I say current because it's not quite over yet, is still underway. There are still ballots being counted in the 2022 midterm election. So what I decided I would do instead is bring you a couple updates that are significant in the 2022 midterm elections. I have seen a lot of attention being paid in Arizona and to some of those races and outcomes there. Some people alleging fraud or some sort of malfeasance. We've already talked about how Arizona, I think, is an object lesson. The top vote getter in the whole state is the Republican treasurer. Happens to be an Asian-American woman. She won roughly 55 percent of the popular vote in that state and carried that position by 11 points. It was a blowout. When you add up all the House races, the Republicans won in the state of Arizona. Some other statewide races went well. For the GOP, some of the others near the top of the ticket statewide didn't. And Republicans lost the governorship and were unable to win back a Senate race, a Senate seat. Rather than getting into all the nitty gritty about this conspiracy theory or this allegation and try to knock them all down like whack-a-mole, I will just say, based on all the evidence that I've seen, those races were won by the Democrats. However... 
the system that they have in place in Arizona for counting votes is pathetic. There was some sort of meltdown on Election Day. It was brief but maybe significant, especially in very close races in Maricopa County. The woman who won the race for governor was the secretary of state responsible for this stuff, and she did a poor job, as she often seems to do, including as a candidate. But she won because ultimately more voters didn't want her opponent to win. That's part of the hard lesson here, even though her opponent, I think, was in a lot of ways pretty talented, Carrie Lake. But for them to have taken as long as they did to count for days on end and the ballot dumps coming in, I know this is a hobby horse. This is like sort of a burr under my saddle to stick with the equine metaphors. But in a civilized, advanced society, there's no excuse for it. And it breeds distrust. And it's hard to blame some of the people for not really trusting the whole thing being perfectly on the up and up when you have some states counting all their votes in a matter of hours and presenting them accurately and quickly. And then other states, it just goes on and on and on for days. Or in the case of California, weeks. Let's shift away from Arizona, but stick out west. We'll stay out there. In Colorado, Lauren Boebert looked like she was in real trouble. Like she could have lost that seat, a Republican seat that they drew, actually, to be even more Republican. But she's got a certain image, sort of this firebrand attitude. And a lot of the voters, even in a Republican district, ultimately decided they weren't really that interested in that. A few hundred, it appears, more voters said they want a Republican in the seat, so she has won. And even though it wasn't actually called by the Associated Press, I'm saying that she won it. This was as of a few days ago because her Democratic opponent sort of ran the math and decided he probably wants to run against, excuse me, run against her next time. So maybe anticipate a rematch out there. And rather than dragging this thing on, he just decided to call her and concede. Because it was going to go into recount territory, that would have taken a while, and the margin was big enough that almost never does that sort of margin get made up. So he said, okay, I lost, conceded the race, she has won by the absolute skin of her teeth, so much closer than it should have been. And maybe she will learn a few lessons, maybe a few Republicans will learn some lessons, both elected officials and candidates and primary voters as well, based on some of the choices and messages that were sent by the broader electorate. But that is a key Republican hold in Colorado 3. And that was, depending on how you're counting this, seat number 219 for the Republicans in the House. 218 being required for a majority, of course. Then there are three still at least officially uncalled races out in uh, in California. I'm looking right now at the New York Times vote counter. And technically in District 3, District 13, and District 22 – Those are uncalled races. We are almost two weeks removed from the election. And yes, I'm going to flog this one more time. It is preposterous. In a country that put a man on the moon, that we cannot get our votes counted in a more efficient and reliable way. All across the country. As I've said before, this should not be something that the federal government mandates. The Democrats tried to force a bunch of election, quote-unquote, reforms onto the country uh, just in the last few months. Unfortunately, those failed. But I'll just keep saying, look to Florida. What the government in Florida over multiple years, multiple administrations dating back to Jeb Bush, what they have pulled off 
is like a clinic in best practices. And then there's the opposite, California, where they count for days and weeks. With ballot harvesting, which is legal there, it's, you know, you got to exploit the rules that are in place. The Republicans have actually gotten better at ballot harvesting because if the Democrats are going to make it legal and they're going to do it, then you got to play by the rules and, and win. It's actually annoying the Democrats out in California how good the Republicans are getting at exploiting the rules that they, the Democrats, created, which is like, you know, world's smallest violin. Sorry, guys. Your rules, your fun. But, I mean, this is just totally unacceptable. This is part of the reason why a national popular vote type thing I think would be such such a dangerous thing for the country in terms of faith and confidence in our elections where it could all come down to California that takes weeks to finally count all the votes. Come on. Now, what I will tell you of these outstanding districts, because there's technically one I should add in Alaska where they're going through another very lengthy process, which is ranked choice voting. It looks like the Democrat is likely to prevail up there because the Republicans split the conservative vote, split the majority Republican electorate. The Republicans, there's a lot of bad blood between them, Sarah Palin being one of them. And so given that Byzantine system that they have, it looks like the Democrat is going to win. So that would be a seat sticking in the blue column because the Democrat actually won a special election a few months ago. Same person. But in California, there's District 3, which has actually been called by a few different organizations for the Republican already. It is not officially a checkmark yet from the Associated Press, but other experts and entities have called that race for the Republican. So that would be seat 220. Then in the 22nd district of California, David Valadeo, who's one of the few Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, to actually survive, he has now won that race. Again, the AP hasn't called it, but Dave Wasserman from the Cook Report says he's seen enough, and that is a re-election for David Valadeo in a Biden double-digit district. So in Washington state, the Republicans threw out one of the Trump impeachers, put someone else in, in a much more Republican district, and he managed to lose an R-plus-13 district to the Democrats because he was doing the whole... 2020 election denial thing in California, they stuck with the incumbent Republican who had voted for impeachment and he beat the Democrat. So that would be seat number 221 for the Republican majority. And then last, really the last one to me that is clearly in doubt is California 13, where the Republican is leading by less than a percentage point with 95 percent of the vote in 95 plus. In California 22, it's showing only 86% counted, which is, come on, it's outrageous. But California 13 is extremely tight. We'll see how some of these final ballots break. There have been some positive signs for the Republican to see if he can hang on. That would be potentially seat 222 when the dust settles. We're going to wait on that one. That one has not been called. But if, if. The Republican in that race wins in California, California 13. That would put the Republicans at 222, the Democrats at 213. And what we would have is an exact flip of the House, literally seat for seat, from a 222 to 213 Democratic majority now, after the 2020 election, to 222, 213, with the parties reversed and the Republicans controlling the House of Representatives. And maybe Kevin McCarthy with the Speaker's gavel because... 
it is going to be a very tight margin, and there are people already giving him headaches about the very first vote they'll take for speaker, which is a drama and some palace intrigue that will play out, uh, play out before our eyes and probably behind closed doors over the coming weeks. We will cover that here on the show. That is your update on the election still happening. At some point, we'll get to the next one, just not yet. At least as long as I'm calling the shots with a show that has my name on it. So that helps. It's the Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Monday. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. In the House of Republicans, we actually won the majority. It's not the size of the gavel, it's the power of the gavel of who holds it. We'll end up with 222 members, exactly the size of what the Democrats have now. But all the work that we want to do, from rolling out the investigation, from rebuilding our economy, from securing our border, none of that can go forward without us moving forward on the floor, having the vote of the Speaker, putting the rules in, and working together as one. We will be successful if we work as one team, and it's something I'm trying to do to make sure it's a bottom-up situation inside our conference. I'm Guy Benson. That is Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader who wants to be Speaker, on Maria Bartiromo's Sunday Morning Futures yesterday arguing that the size of the gavel doesn't matter. Although he understands based on the math, forgive me, but size does matter. And the closer the margin, the tougher it's going to be for him to wrangle the seats that he and the votes that he needs on any number of issues, let alone for his speakership. So every seat that gets added makes that gavel a little bigger. It's good news potentially for Kevin McCarthy. As for the people who aren't willing to back him, he had this message cut too. We need to work as one because if that continues to move forward, all the investigations we ask to happen, the securing the border, the stopping the movement, none of that can move forward without. Uh, Andy ran inside the conference, and we had that debate, and I think that's a healthy debate, and I think that's a good debate. It, it's worth being challenged and make sure competition's there. But we have to work as one conference, because if four want to vote one way, four can vote another. We have to unite as Republicans and understand the commitment we made to the American people. We'll see how that goes. As I said, it'll play out very soon. I'm tempted to make a shrinkage joke. I was at the pool! But we've got a break. On The Guy Benson Show, stay tuned. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And then when the show's over, there's a free podcast. It is on demand. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. Now, leading up to this segment, I was talking about how I'm going to try to avoid, to the greatest extent possible, not completely, 
talking too much about the next election because we are still in the midst of the 2022 midterm cycle. Part of that is because they are still counting and tabulating votes in California, which is just a ridiculous farce, in my opinion, as I've said multiple times. But of course, beyond that, there's also a final piece of the puzzle that will not fall into place until December the 6th. That is the runoff down in Georgia in the Senate race. And we have a large audience in the state of Georgia, particularly in the Atlanta area, 106.3 Extra, our great affiliate down there. This is a race that we are going to focus on because it is important. December 6th is a Tuesday. It is two Tuesdays away from tomorrow. So it matters. And right now in the U.S. Senate, looking ahead to the next Congress, there will be 50 Democrats, possibly 51, and 49, possibly 50 Republicans. Either way, Democrats will have narrow control, but every seat counts. And someone who is heading down to Georgia again to help Herschel Walker, Brian Kemp, the Republican governor, breeze to reelection, beat Stacey Abrams, but we need overtime in the Senate race down there. And the person, as I mentioned, heading down there tomorrow uh, to assist the Republicans is U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, author of a new book, Justice Corrupted, which you've asked him about recently. Senator, welcome back to the show. Guy, great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So if you could just help the audience, not just in Georgia, I'm sure that they are so tired of political ads and that sort of thing in that state. They understand what's at stake. But even around the country, now that almost all the races have been sorted out and the Democrats are going to hold the Senate, and I know a lot of people are disappointed about that, why does the Georgia race matter? Why should people care about what happens in that Warnock-Walker contest, that runoff in a few weeks? Well, the Georgia Senate race matters enormously. Number one, if if we lose the Georgia Senate race, it means the Democrats will pick up an additional seat in the Senate. They will grow their majority from a razor thin 50-50 to a 51-49. What does that mean? Well, Raphael Warnock is one of the most extreme liberal senators in the entire Senate. He is the senator who I think is most out of step with the values of the state he represents. The people of Georgia are not left-wing socialists. They're not uh, radicals who who engage in in division based on race, who embrace unlimited abortion up to to and including the ninth month of pregnancy, who want to take away your Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. They're not radicals who've embraced spending trillions of dollars that is driving massive inflation, driving record high gas prices. They're not radicals who, who want to see district attorneys, George Soros DAs, letting violent criminals go and driving up, uh, driving up uh, crime. They're not radicals who've undermined and demonized police officers the way Raphael Warnock has. But moreover, it makes a big difference whether the Democrats are at 50-50 or 51-49. If they win this seat, if the Democrats win this seat, they get a majority – on every committee in the Senate. Right now, the committees are evenly balanced. With a majority, they can ram through their destructive agenda much, much faster. But secondly, and this is critically important, Guy, the Democrats tried in the last two years to end the filibuster, to blow up the filibuster and lower the threshold to pass any legislation to 50 votes. They came two votes short. 
Only two Democrats said no, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. If Democrats win in Georgia, that margin drops to one vote. And in my view, I think Joe Manchin will fold to Chuck Schumer. I think if we lose in Georgia, Chuck Schumer will blow up the filibuster, which means the Democrats in the Senate will have the votes to take over all federal elections, to strike down federal election integrity laws all across the country, to legalize millions of illegal aliens, to make the District of Columbia a new state with two new Democrat senators, and to pack the U.S. Supreme Court with four ultra-left-wing justices. Losing Georgia puts all of that on the table for Democrats in the Senate. Those stakes are horrifically high. The good news, of course, is that Republicans have won the House, so a lot of that would die on the other side of Capitol Hill. But you never know, Senator, and I think this is part of your point, what's going to happen two years from now. And giving even a single seat back to the Democrats to have their margin get a little bit better, that makes – I understand the map, the Senate map. This is maybe looking a little far ahead. But in 2024, things look much more favorable for the Republicans in the Senate in terms of who's defending what. But – Sometimes elections are unpredictable, as we just learned very, very recently. And to your point about cinema and mansion and barely holding the line on certain things now or in the future, that I think really underscores why every single seat, especially in the United States Senate, is so critical. And that's why I hope people listening to us right now, we have a large audience in Georgia, aren't just rolling their eyes or eyes glazing over and thinking like, okay, here we go again. I'm sort of tired of all this stuff. You know, I'm, I'm sympathetic. It's exhausting. But they've got to keep their intensity going for December 6th because there is, despite what it might seem on the surface, there's a lot at stake here. Well, Guy, what, well, what I'll say is you've got to think like the radicals in the Democrat Party. If the Democrats win Georgia, I believe Chuck Schumer will blow up the filibuster. Why? You said, well, we've got a Republican House so we can stop that. Look, the Democrats know they will get a majority again in the House at some point. And if they blow up the filibuster, when the Democrats have majorities, they use them. And and the changes they want to do are changes to permanently alter our democratic system to make it so that Republicans can never win again and so that Democrats are in permanent power. And the filibuster is the single biggest check on it. Georgia, I believe, is enormously important. It's worth noting. When the election happened on Tuesday, the next day, Herschel called, asked me to come to Georgia, do a rally with him. I did a rally the very next day. We had over 3,000 people come out. It was, there was a lot of energy. There was a lot of excitement. Now where we are right now, I'm going to be there tomorrow night, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. at the Governor's Gun Club in Powder Springs, Georgia. And I want to encourage anyone in Georgia, come to the rally. I'm going to be there. Herschel Walker is going to be there. Lindsey Graham's going to be there, and we're going to be doing it live on Hannity with Sean Hannity, a live town hall. So if you're not in Georgia, watch it on Hannity tomorrow night. But if you're in Georgia, come tomorrow night. The rally is at 7 p.m. at the Governor's Gun Club in Powder Springs, Georgia. Senator Cruz, looking ahead to the next Congress, now we will have divided government, thank goodness, because it's been one-party rule for two years. Uh, It has not gone well. And now there's at least some check on what the Democrats are going to be trying to do. What do you think, realistically speaking, 
the Republican Party in both your chamber and also the lower chamber, what should Republicans try to do? What should they prioritize over these next two years as you now have you know, a, a president who will not have Democratic majorities in both houses? You'll have a Republican Speaker of the House with Nancy Pelosi stepping aside, and you will have either a 50-50 Senate or, as we're talking about, 41 or 51-49, depending on what happens in Georgia. These are such narrow margins all over the place. Strategically speaking, what do you think the GOP needs to do? Well, in the House of Representatives, I think we need real oversight. I think we need serious hearings with subpoenas investigating the policies from this administration that have inflicted so much harm on the American people, the billions of dollars of waste, fraud, and abuse as, the, as they have spent money paying off their left-wing special interest groups, the, the assault on American oil and gas production, which has caused gasoline prices to skyrocket, the, the, the cronyism and the favoritism, including I'm very glad that the, the House of Representatives is going to be investigating the connections between Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, and foreign nations that have paid the Biden family millions of dollars. And it's important to remember, those investigations are not about Hunter. If it was just one, one tortured soul with substance abuse problems, that would not be a matter of public concern. The reason it is a public concern is the evidence is substantial that, that what occurred was official corruption of Joe Biden himself as vice president and now as president, all of those investigations are important. Then I think on top of that guy, we need to take up and pass positive pro-growth, pro-job legislation, legislation, cutting taxes, simplifying the burdens on small businesses and job creators. Now, that legislation is going to go to the Senate and the Democrats are going to block it, but we need to tee up those fights one after the other. And I'll tell you in the Senate, guy, we just had a battle over Senate leadership and and the first time in 16 years that Mitch McConnell's been leader, that that leadership has been disputed. I made a motion to delay our leadership elections until after December 6th, after the Georgia runoff. At the end of the day, that motion didn't carry, but 16 senators voted with me. We needed 25. So we were just nine short of what we needed. And the reason I made that motion was that we, we needed a debate about how are Senate Republicans going to approach the next two years. I believe we need to stand up and fight, fight smart, but actually fight and use the levers of power we have to, number one, stop soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines from being fired by Joe Biden for declining to take the COVID vaccine shot. Number two, to refuse to fund 87,000 new IRS agents to be used to harass and persecute American citizens and instead to put that funding on our southern border. I think we got to pick a few big fights that matter and actually stand up with courage and fight against this disastrous agenda. I hope that's what the next two years will entail. Yeah, and uh, we enjoy having Leader McConnell on this show. You and I have spoken offline about McConnell many times. We agree sometimes. We disagree sometimes on that front. I look forward to having uh, Mitch, Cocaine Mitch, back on the show to ask him about what his strategy looks like, what he has in mind. I do want to ask you, uh, Senator, because I've seen a few articles about this. I'm sure you've seen maybe some of the headlines or the tweets. Uh, Twitter's been a very interesting space recently, of course. You gave a speech, as did so many leading Republicans, out in Las Vegas a few days ago. And people are saying, oh, this is the 2024 
cycle is already beginning. You announced or confirmed that you are running for reelection two years from now in the United States Senate in Texas. And I know some of the commentary on your speech suggested that maybe you were hinting that you were only going to run for Senate, not run for president. Other reports I said said, no, it's, you, you left the door open. Have you seen those reports? Is there any clarity you want to shed on that question? Oh, listen, the clarity is exactly what I said there, which is that I'm running for reelection for Senate. Uh, I'm in cycle. I'm up right now. Uh, there is no senator in the United States Senate who Democrats want to defeat more than me. Six years ago in my last reelect, it was the most expensive Senate race in U.S. history. The Democrats came after me. They spent three times as much as we did. They, they more than doubled Democrat turnout. And they came within two points of winning. So we're taking this very, very seriously. I encourage folks, go to TedCruz.org, TedCruz.org, TedCruz.org. Make contributions because we've been outraised and outspent over and over and over again. And to lead the fight takes, takes resources. As for 2024 and the presidential race, look, my focus is on leading the fight in the United States Senate. My focus right now is on Georgia and December 6th winning in Georgia. That's why I'm flying to Georgia the second time in two weeks to help Herschel Walker, because we've got to stand up and fight smart and seriously against this disastrous agenda the Democrats are ramming through. Yep. One more chance to make a difference in the 2022 cycle, and that is December the 6th in the state of Georgia with more than meets the eye at stake for reasons that Senator Cruz has just explained here on the show. And then, yes, we will all start casting our eyes ahead to 2024 in very important congressional and Senate races. And then that other race that everyone is uh, at least thinking about, if not talking about or entered in one case already. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, our guest here, his book is Justice Corrupted. And Senator, safe travels to Georgia. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Guy. I appreciate it. And remind everyone, come out tomorrow, 7 p.m., to the Governor's Gun Club in Powder Springs, Georgia. I'll be there. Herschel Walker will be there. Lindsey Graham will be there. Sean Hannity will be there. You should be there, too. And we'll fight to take our country back. You know what, Senator? I was about to wish you a happy Thanksgiving because it's so soon. On that front, less than a minute, is there something in particular that you were especially thankful for this year? Look, I am thankful. I'm thankful for my family. We have two incredible girls who are now 12 and 14 who are growing up. And, and I'm thankful for the privilege not only to live in the greatest country in the history of the world, but, but, but I'm thankful for the privilege to be in the arena, that we're fighting to make a difference, that what we're fighting over, it's not little stuff. It's not small stakes. It's does this last best hope for mankind continue or do we see it snuffed out in our lifetimes? And, and that is a fight worth fighting. I, I feel incredibly grateful to be in that fight, to be in that fight with you, Guy, and to be in that fight with every one of your listeners who loves this country and loves our Constitution. This is a fight worth fighting for all of us. Well, I think that's nicely said, Senator, and very happy Thanksgiving to you and to Heidi and to the girls. We appreciate your time. Blessings. We'll take a break. We'll come right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. This is an upsetting story on crime. Yes, still an issue. Election over, still a problem. 
in Washington, D.C. We've been talking about D.C. crime a lot. We're a D.C.-based show. It's the capital of the country. And we had mentioned a few times that the city council here, just an insane group of people, they have now twice voted to advance over the objections of law enforcement, even the mayor, this overhaul of the criminal justice system in D.C. in such a way that would lessen criminal penalties for a whole host of crimes, all, of course, in the name of equity and justice. One of the punishments that would come down, be reduced, is for carjacking, a problem that has exploded and resulted in multiple felony murders in Washington, D.C., Like, oh, let's reduce the penalties for it. They actually voted unanimously to advance this legislation twice. Well, here's the headline from the local Fox affiliate. Man who helped pass D.C. criminal code overhaul shot and killed in southeast Washington. A man who helped pass Washington, D.C.'s historic criminal code overhaul was shot and killed hours before the council passed the bill last week. Kelvin Blow, 32 worked with D.C. Justice Lab, a group that advocates for criminal justice reform in the city. He also did some security work on the side. He had just finished a late-night security job, was driving some co-workers home, and police say there was a crash. After he got out of his vehicle, he was shot and killed. Awful. Absolutely awful story. And I don't think that this legislation is going to make things like this any better. Illustrative, still very sad. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Andy McCarthy, Bill Malugin still to come here on today's program. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is free every single day on demand if you miss any of the show. GuyBensonShow.com is your one-stop shop for that. Follow us on social media, both Twitter and Instagram. It's the same handle, at GuyBensonShow. And a special shout-out and welcome to KOKC in Oklahoma City, our brand-new affiliate joining the family today. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closing down at the close, 45 points in the red. Dow ending the day at 33,700 even. And we were going to talk, and we are going to talk in this segment, about soccer, something I almost never want to talk about, honestly. But, you know, let's Fox News alert this one, too. A tie. Team USA, which missed the World Cup last time out, qualified this time. There was buzz about them. They're good. They're young. Isn't soccer wonderful? Well, they played Wales today. And they tied one to one. Now, forgive my ignorance. I did not realize that Wales had its own soccer team. Because Wales is within the United Kingdom. I guess England England has their own team. They won today against Iran. Then presumably Scotland would have its own team. I guess Wales does too. 
a little tiny country that's a subsection of the United Kingdom. Team USA, I guess, heavily favored going into this game, at least, into this match. And in a scintillating thriller, a one-to-one tie is the final score over there in Qatar, which is the host country. That's a whole separate controversy. We have one person here at the show who's an actual soccer fan. It's Dan. Dan, do you want to defend any of this? Is there a reason why we should continue to care? Is Team USA out? How does this work? No, it's, it goes on a point system, so you get three points for a win in a match. You get one point for a draw, so they have one point now, and so does Wales. So then they move on to Friday, where they play England at 1 p.m. Eastern time, and then hopefully get a three-point win, and then they could have four points. It's a very exciting game. I know it's low scoring, and a lot of Americans don't like that, but it's very fast-paced. It's very... You know, athletic, it's a, it's a great game, and I think people should give it more of a try. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'll watch Team USA every four years. It's sort of my soccer threshold. And it just, am I correct to say that this seems to be a, a pretty significant disappointment, today's outcome? Yes, they were looked as a favorite and should have taken that, taken the three points instead of the one. Okay, instead it's a 1-1 tie. Now, part of the controversy surrounding this World Cup in general is that it's being held in this Gulf nation, which has some human rights problems, to put it mildly. But the guy who runs the organization that governs the World Cup, FIFA, it's the International Soccer Federation, apparently has decided that the way he's going to respond to any of those criticisms is through wokeness. Now, FIFA, I mean, their detractors are all over the place so many accusations of corruption and bribery and various scandals. It's another reason why I'm not super into soccer. But the gentleman who runs the show over at FIFA, I guess his name is Gianni Infantino. And at a press conference the other day, he decided he was going to do a lot of virtue signaling and uh, talk about all the marginalized groups that he identifies as or with. I don't know really how this works. Cut 26. Have uh... Very strong feelings, I can tell you that. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. Oh, great. So uh, old Gianni over there at FIFA feels like a lot of things. He felt Qatari, he felt Arab, he felt African, he felt gay, he felt disabled, he felt like a migrant worker. Not a slave worker that helped build the stadiums over there, apparently, by the way, slave labor. I'll tell him, I actually feel one of those things. I actually am one of those things. But I guess he decided he was going to stand in solidarity and identify as all of them or something. And I can imagine somewhere Elizabeth Warren wondering why she didn't think of this. She only had one thing that she fake identified as. He just rattled off all of them. And he also cruelly excluded any number of marginalized people from that list, by the way. So I think Mr. Infantino needs to go back to the woke drawing board and try again. Not good enough, Gianni. Then he was asked about some of the human rights violations and curtailment of freedoms, They've banned in Qatar the beer, the alcohol at the stadiums. That's 
ticked off a lot of people. They're not allowing rainbow paraphernalia because I guess that's political. They don't really love the whole gay thing. So he can say he feels gay, but the place that he helps select for a lot of money coming into FIFA to Qatar, they're, they're not allowing that to really happen. It's just interesting, all these woke sponsors, big corporate sponsors, woke as can be back at home, happily sending their money to the games happening over there because money is what they care about, not any of these stupid causes that they pretend to care about to keep their employees and the woke mob happy. It's just very obvious exactly how this works. But there were questions about some of the charges and challenges, given the fact that the Qatari government is playing host here. And this same guy, Gianni Infantino, decided to do basically the broader version of blame America first, blame the West first, cut 25. We are told many, many lessons from some Europeans from the Western world. I'm European. Actually, I am European. Not just I feel European. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons to people. Aha. So Europeans should be apologizing for thousands of years based on all the horrible, rotten things that they did before telling anyone what? That slavery is bad? That gay people shouldn't be killed? Or, or what? Just morally obtuse. What an embarrassing performance or performances there from Gianni. And there's been a lot of idiocy on MSNBC about this as well, unsurprisingly. Oh, I was hoping I could report the Team USA won today, but they didn't. A real thriller of a tie. Soccer. Ugh. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. Yesterday morning I woke up heading into the studios to join Shannon Bream and company on Fox News Sunday. And I looked at my phone and checked the headlines. And just in an awful development to wake up to, there was a mass shooting in Colorado Springs, Colorado, just before midnight, mountain time, on Saturday night at an LGBT club called Club Q. Not familiar with the establishment. I've never been there, but I spent a fair amount of time in Colorado. And any news of something like this, no matter where it happens, just makes your stomach sink. And for this to have happened at a gay nightclub in particular, obviously brought back some very unpleasant and painful memories from 2016. The Pulse Massacre in Orlando, where in that case... The assailant was a jihadist inspired by ISIS. We are still learning more information about the suspect in this shooting that happened this past weekend in Colorado. We will not be mentioning his name, which is part of our policy here with mass shooters on The Guy Benson Show. But I want to talk about what happened just a little bit. It's not a fun topic, of course, at all. The first thing that I want to say is... Even though we don't have an exact picture of what motivated this person, he has now been charged just in the last few hours with first-degree murder and hate or discrimination-inspired crimes. So at least they're getting some indications that 
he chose this target for a reason. And that is obviously extremely upsetting. He is to blame. I hate all of the finger pointing that always happens, all the talking points that immediately start getting deployed. You could almost recite them in your sleep at this point, which is depressing after these types of incidents where people decide that their pre-existing loathing of political opponents can be fueled by whatever just happened. And so, oh, Republican politicians are to blame or this rhetoric is to blame or you name it. People have their hobby horses. They're trying to process something that they're upset and angry about, and they channel it into attacking their political opponents, which I think is very unhealthy, very unfair, deepening our divides and making us more tribal. And I would say adding to resentments because it's understandable for a bunch of people who had nothing to do with a horrible, heinous act suddenly being attacked or blamed for something that they're not responsible for, that is resentment building. And I had put a few comments out on social media about this because I was affected by it emotionally, was impacted. I wanted to just say some things, and I had some folks sending me comments and messages effectively saying that I am somewhat complicit in the bloodshed because I'm a conservative. And I'm a traitor to the gay cause or whatever. It's just very boring. I can shake that off. But sometimes I can imagine to other people it would be very, very angering. And I think it achieves nothing at all. That's one point I want to make. Second point, we see mass shootings at grocery stores. We see it at schools, unfortunately. We've seen it in any number of places, offices. What is, I think, an added insult about this one from my perspective as a member of the LGBT community is that gay clubs or gay bars traditionally for a long time have been safe spaces, not in the stupid, frivolous, woke sense, but in the organic, real sense, places where people who are different than most other people and for many, many, many years were discriminated against and not welcome to get together be themselves in a comfortable, safe setting where that isn't really the case many other places. Now, we've come a long way as a society, and people who don't acknowledge that progress, I think, do a great disservice. And people who then chase all these other weird sort of boutique issues for their LGBT activism, I think, overreach and turn people off. But overall, we have made really good progress in this country in terms of tolerance and acceptance on these issues, and I'm very grateful for it, and to the people who did a lot of that hard work. And even if you're not gay or even if you're fairly opposed to same-sex marriage or any of this other stuff, on a human level, I hope you can understand why something like this would be so appalling and so offensive beyond the loss of life, beyond the bloodshed, just what it symbolizes, an intrusion into a place that should be safe, where people can let their hair down a little bit and dance and sing and be with people like them. They shouldn't have to worry that someone is going to select that location to come and try to kill them just because they happen to be there and just because they happen to be who they are. That is another level of grotesque violation here. And I wanted to acknowledge that. 
I also want to acknowledge the bona fide heroism of the people who stopped this guy. So according to people who were there and the owner of the business and apparently security footage, this individual came in with a long gun. It sounded like there was also a handgun, body armor. This was all planned. Started firing, trying to murder as many people as he could. And while people were screaming and running away, one guy in particular, a patron at the bar, charged at the assailant and took him down and then pinned him to the ground and kept him there until the police arrived. Five innocent people were murdered. More than two dozen were wounded. Those numbers would be a lot worse if not for this person, and I guess one other person helped substantially as well. But just the bravery of that action, quick thinking, selfless, putting his life on the line to stop this thing, what an amazing thing. My hat is just off. We'll probably find out the identity of that person at some point. Last I saw, we didn't have that yet. The last thing I want to say is something that people started sending me yesterday morning, a local news report or two from Colorado, El Paso County. This is a more Republican area of a Democratic state from last year, 2021, where a person matching the exact same name and age of the suspect in this shooting from this past weekend, same name, first, middle, last, and age, was arrested last year after this very bizarre and frightening siege involving a bomb threat where part of a neighborhood in Colorado had to be evacuated by the police. They were negotiating with this person. Apparently he had a whole cache of weapons. And after that finally came to an end and he surrendered himself after a back and forth with the police, he was charged, this person, with multiple serious felonies. And what I don't understand... And it has now been confirmed that this is, in fact, the same person, same guy. There are red flag laws on the books in Colorado. What more of a red flag could you possibly ask for than a bomb threat siege just a year ago? What happened to these felony charges? How on earth was this person walking the streets free, let alone getting a gun somehow, to then go and commit this atrocity when a giant flashing red light of danger was already emanating from this individual based on previous criminal activity. The reports are that the charges were dropped for some reason or that they weren't pursued. And I guess no one saw fit to maybe flag this guy with the red flag law. Somehow he ended up with a gun and ammo and body armor, and then he went and murdered five people. And so far, some of the officials that have been asked about what happened in 2021 and what didn't happen, they're giving like no comment answers, which is not going to fly. That's not good enough. And of course, we're hearing all the calls for new gun control and all this stuff. I think a lot of us wonder why would we ever agree to any new laws when existing laws aren't properly enforced or utilized, which is at least how it appears at these early stages. That makes the tragedy even more enraging. If this person was an obvious problem that did something 
extremely dangerous and disturbing a year ago and then was just out. How does that happen? There are questions that will need to be answered about this. And I would imagine that the families and friends and loved ones of those who died are going to be demanding those answers, and they should. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website where the podcast is free every day. And with us now, Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple best-selling books. He's at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. And Andy, good to have you back here. Guy, great to be with you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, and I want to hopefully come back to that point toward the end of the interview as we approach Thanksgiving Day later this week. First, though, please help us understand this special counsel announcement from the Justice Department in the Trump investigation. Andy, I have to tell you, my brain is just swimming with overload information on Trump and investigations and controversies and DOJ and various prongs of Sagas that seem to have been dragging on now for years. What is this special counsel charged with? Who is the special counsel? And where do you see things playing out from here? Well, Guy, you're quite correct to have your head spinning. As I, I wrote a column at National Review over the weekend about how not only do we had at that point uh, seven known investigations of uh, Trump and the Trump Organization and, and various other uh, aspect of the uh, aspects of Trump world, uh, I predicted that there would be more uh, for a variety of reasons. And sure enough, the Times reports today that there's yet another one now. The Manhattan DA's office is reviving the investigation. It appeared to, it appeared to have uh, dropped earlier this year, or at least a piece of it. But to your question about the federal special counsel that's been ordered by or authorized by uh Attorney General Merrick Garland, I really think it's theater more than anything else. It really doesn't change the criminal jeopardy that the former president uh, appears to be in. Uh, It's simply a device to make it look like there's a level of insulation or detachment between the Biden administration and a case that looks like it could be brought against not only the former president, but uh, Donald Trump is also obviously a candidate for uh, the 2024 nomination to run against President Biden. So uh, based on that rationale, the fact that uh, it's it's a case of the Biden administration investigating a political rival of President Biden, that was uh, how Garland basically calculated that uh, he could say that we'll appoint a special counsel and we'll be detached from it. The thing I think is incredible about it is the conflict that that Garland and the Justice Department, the Biden administration have with respect to the Biden investigation, which they call the Hunter Biden investigation in order to try to trivialize it in the public mind, is much more clear than 
the conflict in connection with Trump. So and they're not doing a special could, counsel there, right? Correct, right. So how they could do this one and not that one is uh, – that's a head-scratcher. Unless you and think Andy, it's just, just help me here. Just pause for a second. And I think I'm right about this, but the fact that I'm not 100 percent sure means that I have to ask you. The federal investigation that we're talking about that has now been punted over to a special counsel, that one is in connection to the Mar-a-Lago raid – fiasco and the alleged wrongdoing there, or is it broader than that? It's both, according to what's expressly stated in Garland's order authorizing the special counsel, it is both the Mar-a-Lago investigation and any any January 6th related case implicating Trump. But he took pains to say, I'm not talking about the other 800 cases that we've brought in connection with January 6th against people who were involved in the violent uprising at the Capitol. What they're looking at with Trump, I believe, is obstruction of Congress in connection with, uh, you know, propounding this legal theory that uh, that Vice President Pence had somehow the constitutional authority not to count electoral votes and whether there's anything criminal in that. Right. And there was some argument also about obstruction related to the January 6th committee and witness tampering, I know that was at least being discussed. It's hard to keep them all straight, Andy, and I think this is also part of the problem. I don't doubt that possibly there has been illegal activity from Trump or his associates on some or any of these things. I don't know. I'm not sure how illegal this stuff has been compared to other politicians who get away with things like Hillary Clinton and others where they decide just not to prosecute people, you know, Andy McCabe for lying. There seems to be different standards of justice, whether the law is applied strictly to some or others. That is an open conversation that people are having. I also can't help but think, especially in some of the circumstances in the state of New York and elsewhere, that some of the prosecutions or at least investigations are obviously, if not explicitly, political. And I do think the fact that we've sort of flooded the zone with so much of this stuff that it's kind of hard for people to tell the difference between something that might potentially be legitimate, but at least down to discretion or something that's just pure politics. And it's exhausting to try to keep track of, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I I agree with that guy. And I would point out along the lines of what you're saying, that most of the state investigations of Trump, uh, we talk about the one I just mentioned that has been reopened by Alvin Bragg, who is the progressive Democrat district attorney of Manhattan County in New York. Then you have the big fraud civil case that was brought by the progressive Democratic attorney general in New York state, Letitia James. And there's another progressive Democratic prosecutor, Fannie Willis, who was conducting an investigation in Fulton County, which is Atlanta, Georgia, uh, into the 2020 election and the Trump campaign's activities there. I think what you have to expect is that These state prosecutor positions are elected office positions. This is not like the Justice Department where prosecutor positions are appointed positions. So these are people who run for office. Uh, Letitia James explicitly ran for office on, if you elect me, I'm going to get Trump. And it's very lucrative fundraising for them. Now, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean there's no cases, but if, you know, the incentive is there to, to proliferate, and that certainly seems to be what's happening. Yeah, and I think cynical people get more cynical, and even non-cynical people look at it with a very skeptical eye, including 
Yours truly. Andy, one more question on the Trump investigations. The special counsel that has been appointed, I've seen some mixed reviews of his record, what he's done in the past. Conservatives, some saying he's credible, others saying, well, look at this, that or the other. Do you have a view on this special counsel? Do you know him? Uh, I don't know him personally. I've been trying to get up to speed on his work just uh, as as you do, uh, as you have, Guy. Um, my view of it, for what it's worth, is, um, you know, obviously we should look at the politics here because this was done for political reasons. I mean, this was done by Garland to create an impression that the administration is not calling the shots here. So obviously who the uh, special counsel is and what his background is is very important because what they're trying to do here uh, is create an impression. But I still think the bottom line here is if the, if the Biden Justice Department or anyone it delegates were trying to investigate something like Russiagate, where, there, where it was more of a hoax than an actual thing, that would look like a politicized abuse of power. If what they're looking at instead proves to be serious criminal misbehavior, I think people are going to be naturally wary of who the prosecutor is, which is fine. It's, it's fine to take that position. But what's going to carry the day is whether it's, we're talking about really serious offenses and whether they have good evidence. And the rest will just be details. Andy, you also wrote a piece at National Review in the last couple of days on President Biden and his boondoggle, as you call it, on student loans, this scheme that I think is profoundly unfair, terrible policy, inflationary and illegal. That's my summary of it. I know that they have now asked in the administration for the Supreme Court to take up the case and allow them to do this illegal thing. I think that they'll probably be disappointed by the justice's decision if it goes that far. I talked about this yesterday on Fox News Sunday. What the Democrats are saying out loud to reporters is actually when you frame it a certain way, it's really popular with the American people. Now, there's other polling showing when you name a single downside or trade-off, then it becomes very unpopular among people. But at least top line, they're saying this is a popular program. If the courts and the Republicans want to kill it, we'll attack them for it. And we think maybe it's legal anyway, although it seems like the effort to justify it constitutionally is extremely weak. Just want to get your overall analysis of a federal court pausing this thing, at least for now, and where you think the next steps might lead. Well, Guy, as you know, uh, the Justice Department, as you as you mentioned, is pushing the Supreme Court uh, to visit what the Eighth Circuit has done, which is basically impose a nationwide injunction against Mm -hmm. the program until that litigation can be fully heard. So on Friday evening, the Justice Department filed a brief with Justice Kavanaugh, who was the circuit justice for the Eighth Circuit, meaning any emergency application from there goes to him, um, asking the Supreme Court to to stop, basically to freeze the stay or get rid of the stay so so that the program can go forward while the litigation takes place. Of course, if that happens, the litigation will be pointless because the program will be, you know, the the, um, loans will be discharged, so there'll be nothing left to litigate. But uh, as I understand it, Justice Kavanaugh has referred this to the full court, and they have asked the six states who are uh, plaintiffs in the case to respond to the Justice Department's brief by Wednesday of this week. So it looks like we'll get some decision, I would imagine, probably next week, the week after from the Supreme Court about that. 
Is there any ambiguity, Andy, in your mind about my analysis that this is flagrantly unconstitutional, that the president lacks the authority to do this, as, for example, Speaker Pelosi herself said just last year? No ambiguity at all. And in fact, Guy, what I would underscore here is the Biden administration's position with respect to the program and the legal challenges to it has been to try to tweak it in order to prevent people and entities and states from having standing to sue. So I think the thing is, it's, it's pretty clear, by the way, they're conducting themselves. They know they have a big problem trying to justify this on the merits. The president doesn't have any authority to do what he's done here. Uh, and the thought that they relied on the, this 2003 statute, which was meant to help uh, people who were in the military uh, who, who had college loans – uh, in connection with the war on terror activities in the early yeah, 2000s. There's no application right. to the broader public, the way that they're trying to sort of shoehorn this thing in. And one of the points that I made, and I know it's an elementary one, perhaps naive at this point, given what the administration is trying to do and just the creep of executive power generally in this country, but I know it's a wild thought, but if you want to change a law or pass a law that involves lots of money and the transfer of wealth, in this case, from a lot of working class and middle class people to folks who have expensive degrees who made those choices, you can go to Congress, you can pass the law if you are able to get the votes, and then the president can sign it. Of course, that's not what happened here at all. No, and the point you make is is very timely because the last big case, recall, that the Supreme Court decided last term was EPA against West Virginia, where they essentially said – if, it, if there's going to be executive action that is extremely consequential in the sense that it it, it uh, creates big economic shifts in the society or changes the relationship between uh, you know the person and the state, um, it's not that you can't do that, but you have to have a clear mandate from Congress. So I think what the court is, has been trying to say here is that. Uh, if we're going to have executive governance, we're not going to have it without Congress as a knowing partner, which means the executive branch is going to have to show that they have a clear mandate in statutory law from Congress. The Biden administration knew that when it did this program right before the election, and it seems pretty clear to me at least that uh, what this was meant to do was help their get-out-the-vote uh, effort, and it yep. may have been quite successful in that regard. Finally, Andy McCarthy, since you wished me a happy Thanksgiving at the top, I do just want to ask you, as we approach that wonderful American holiday, are there any specific things that you were particularly thankful for this year? Well, I'm happy um, that my family uh, is in good health. Um, you know, some people in my family had a little bit of a difficult year Um with, uh, you know, with COVID and the aftermath of it. So I'm especially grateful that the people who are close to me uh, pulled through all that. Uh, I always feel, Guy, that I have a pretty good life, you know, so I have a lot to be thankful for. And we, you know, we complain a lot about uh, politics and a lot of very serious stuff. But when it gets down to, you know, the nitty gritty, we're lucky enough to live in the greatest country in the history of the world, and we have it pretty good. And I just I, – I mean, what do I have to complain about? I'm just back from the National Review cruise in the Caribbean where I spent time with uh, uh, scores of just 
wonderful people who are um, who are so accomplished uh, and so knowledgeable. And I just the, the thought that they were interested in anything I have to say um, is like a gift from God. So I don't really have anything to complain about and a lot to be thankful for. No, I think that's very well said. Andy McCarthy, our guest, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor here on The Guy Benson Show. Andy, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. We'll talk to you again after the holiday. You too, Guy. Thanks so much. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. It was yesterday, maybe last evening, that I was scrolling through my Twitter feed and I was trying to ignore all of the annoying tweets about Twitter and how Elon Musk is the devil or how things are getting worse or how Twitter is going away. I just like, I have no appetite for it. I can't even be bothered to let it consume any of my thoughts. Like, I wanted to maybe talk about it on the show today at length. I just don't really have a take right now. My brain is too tired from it. I just filter out as I scroll through tweets. I just filter all that stuff out. But one tweet that I did see was from Quiet Wyatt, who simply wrote, Bob's back. And weirdly, I actually knew what he was talking about, knowing him. He was talking about a pretty surprising big move at Disney, where the existing CEO was basically tossed out of the company. And Disney's former CEO, Bob Iger, is now back. Now, they're both named Bob, so that's part of the confusion. But the original Bob, or the previous Bob, Bob Iger, has now returned. Wyatt, as our resident Disney expert, what does this mean? Why should we care? It means that the the ship is being righted, hopefully, and that Bob Iger will step in and and bring the company back and bring bring a little more magic back to the company because these past few months, not even a year almost, since he's been retired— uh, the magic has been lost. So hopefully the magic will be brought back. Yeah, he's kind of a lefty in some ways himself, but the other guy was super woke, and we've talked about all the Disney battles. That guy's out. Iger's back. I heard some rumor about maybe a new theme park somewhere in the U.S., at least people pushing for it. You're shaking your head. You don't think it's happening? Nope, nope. I keep your eye on the streaming service. I think there's a big play going on there. Interesting. Unlike a certain streaming service of a cable news competitor, which is no more. Huh. Okay. Well, thank you, Wyatt, for that Disney update. Bob's back. That was his big tweet. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Bill Malugin, our colleague from The Border, up next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Monday. It is Turkey Week, a holiday week. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free, on demand every day. Also at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's both Twitter and Instagram. Lots of content there. By the way, we are welcoming this week a brand new affiliate, KOKC, 1250 AM and 95.3 FM. 
Talk Radio's new generation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Welcome aboard. Welcome to the family. OKC. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. I had a few over the weekend. I suspect some will be served around Thanksgiving. Maybe not at the table itself, but in the lead-up and the aftermath of Thanksgiving in our house. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold near you as they expand all over the place due to popular demand. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. And joining us now from El Paso, Texas, it's our colleague Bill Malugin, national correspondent here at Fox News. And, Bill, it is great to have you here. Hey, guy. Great to join you as always, my friend. So I saw something interesting. Obviously, it caught your attention, too. Someone who's gotten a fair amount of attention recently, Elon Musk, you might have heard of him, he tweeted on his platform at you. What was that about? Yeah, it's actually like the uh, the third or fourth time he's done it. Every now and then he'll post videos from the border, typically uh, a huge illegal crossing. And a few times now, he's responded and been kind of surprised by the images we're showing at the border. Today, for instance, we showed a group of about 400 that crossed in the Eagle Pass. Uh, and he replied essentially saying, it seems strange that it's so easy to cross illegally, but it's so hard to get work visas to come in you know, the, the legal way. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. absolutely true. I mean, it's a very, I think, trenchant, if not slightly obvious observation. And what's the response, really? I know that you probably have a sense of it being down there, but I do wonder if the people in charge of these policies were to seriously grapple with that type of challenge, what would they say? Because it doesn't really seem to me like there's a very good answer or a satisfying or acceptable answer to that type of question or challenge. Oh, there's not. And just the other day, we heard Chuck Schumer essentially say that he believes all 11 million people in the United States should be given legal status. And for the people who are waiting in line trying to do it the right way, that's kind of a slap in the face to them. When, you know, we're showing images every single day of people just literally walking across the border and then they're getting released via parole and they get to apply for work permits. What, what's the incentive these days for trying to come here legally? You know, that's the question a lot of people are wondering when they see so many people, millions of people, simply just walking across the river and getting released into the United States. And now you have a a major figure in the Democratic Party essentially saying, I might add, just a week after the midterms, that they would like to grant mass amnesty to over 10 million people who, who came here illegally. Yep. They're talking about reviving the DREAM Act and trying to stick that onto some other legislation. As I mentioned last week, I've been in favor of the DREAM Act, but I am basically hitting the pause button on anything that even smells like amnesty until this crisis can be brought under some semblance of control, because otherwise you have a huge incentive problem and enforcement must be prioritized. That has not been the case. The results are disastrous. So even my own previously held position, I am not willing to support at the moment for the reasons that I'm explaining here. And then when you have this added amnesty, a mass amnesty of virtually every illegal immigrant who entered the country at least up to a certain point, I mean, Bill, they should know by now these words have impact, not just in U.S. politics. People follow this very closely all around the world, especially south of the border here. And when you have high-ranking officials saying, hey, maybe we're going to do something where we give everyone a path to legal status or citizenship, whatever it's going to be, that perks their ears up and it only makes the magnet stronger. It, I mean, it, it just feels like some of this stuff has to be intentional at some point. It it really does, and it's what we call a pull factor. And keep in mind, those comments are coming at the exact same time 
when we've learned that Title 42 is going to be rescinded within five weeks. So you now have this essential two-headed beast with, you know, major Democratic figures saying, let's legalize people who have crossed here illegally up to a certain point. And you've got Title 42 dropping in December, uh, which means people will no longer have a fear of immediately getting kicked back to Mexico. Those are two things right there that are going to become immediate pull factors. And Border Patrol sources have told us when Title 42 actually drops, you can expect a surge on top of a surge on top of a surge down here because these numbers keep going up even with Title 42 in place. And remember, it was initially supposed to go away back in the spring. And DHS's own estimates were showing that on the higher end of their estimates, they could be getting 17,000 people crossing illegally every single day. Just to put that in perspective right now, we're getting between like five and 8,000 per day. Uh, so it, it would be almost a tripling of the current situation if their worst projections were to pan out. I mean, and you have these pull factors, one on top of another, on top of another, as you just laid out, and the problem continues to spiral. I know that we briefly mentioned the October numbers here on the air. We didn't focus on it at great length, but since you're here, Bill, we might as well go through them just a little bit. Last October, we were right in the middle of the throes of this crisis, and the October numbers were bad and record-breaking. This past October, just last month, the start of the new fiscal year, the numbers were far worse. I mean, far worse than the already very bad. And sometimes we sound like broken records, but someone has to talk about this. Someone has to highlight the data. So just remind us of month one of the new fiscal year. What did we see down there? Month one, October, was about 230,000 migrant encounters. It was the highest October ever recorded. And then the really concerning number was just in October alone, multiple CBP sources tell us there were more than 64,000 known gotaways. That is more than 2,000 people sneaking past our border agents every single day. So by the time the dust settles for the month of October, you're looking at around 300,000 illegal crossings. In one in month. month. And, and tens of thousands of them. We'd seen 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, 64,000 plus in October alone, people who didn't get caught, people who got away. We knew they crossed. We didn't have the manpower, didn't have the wherewithal, didn't have the resources to go get them. People who don't surrender themselves tend to more disproportionately be folks who might be more dangerous, might have a reason to try to elude or evade capture. Then, of course, there's a whole separate group of people that we don't know any actual quantifiable number about, the unknown gotaways. It just it is so frustrating, even sitting here in a studio all these many hundreds of miles away, it is so galling. It has to be so much worse, Bill, for the folks down there. You know, we look at the images, the thermal imaging, the drone footage that you guys put out all the time, just mass entrances of illegal immigrants constantly. It's just an endless loop. And there are people down there who are trying to get a handle on this. seems like they're being undermined, if not smeared at every turn by the people in Washington who are in charge there was just recently a bit of a shakeup at Border Patrol. Biden's chief was forced out at the behest of the DHS secretary. We talked to Tom Homan, former acting ICE director here about that. He was not a fan of the guy who was tossed out effectively of the position, but also argued that it probably won't change anything because the policies aren't changing. What are you hearing from law enforcement officials and Border Patrol folks that you talk to all the time about this change at the top, at least of this one organization? 
uh, getting rid of Chris Magnus, the former CBP commissioner, is not going to change a single thing here at the southern border because you mentioned that the policy comes from the top. That comes from Secretary Mayorkas, and above him, that comes from the Biden administration. Rem- uh, removing and replacing the CBP commissioner, really, it- it's it's not going to change anything down here at the southern border. And the bottom line right now is we simply don't have enough Border Patrol agents out on the front line. We, we just don't. So we came to the, the El Paso sector for the very first time. We're out here. This has been the busiest sector along the southern border in the last couple of months. Um, and Can you explain that just re- really quickly, Bill, because it seems like sometimes there are certain hotspots where you're at Eagle Pass and things are really bad there, and then you move because the action goes elsewhere – El Paso, at least for a period of time, was relatively quiet. If memory serves, that's why they sent Vice President Harris there to go to a place that at least had partial border wall and wasn't all that busy. And they were checking the box so she could say that she'd been down there. Now it has become a much more higher traffic area. Do we understand why? For whatever reason, the traffic over the last year, year and a half or so has gradually moved west. So if you remember, 2021, almost all the big action was in the Rio Grande Valley. Last year, it started shifting towards the Del Rio sector, a little bit further to the northwest. Well, a little bit earlier this year, kind of over the summer, the really big numbers started coming here to the El Paso sector. Now, the Del Rio sector is still getting... You know, very big numbers, about 1,500 people every single day. But here in El Paso, they've been getting upwards of 2,000 every single day. So we don't know the reason why, but a lot of the traffic has gradually moved further west along the border. And is it because, right now, just to throw out, just to throw out uh, a hypothesis here, and this is just pure guesswork on my part, the coyotes and the cartels who run this as a very carefully honed business to the tune of, hundreds of millions of dollars every month. I think it's more than $100 million a week was the number that I had heard, but it's very lucrative. They have this almost down to a science with the wristbands and the payment systems and all of it. I would at least guess, Bill, that the people sort of running this massive human trafficking operation, they are changing their arrival points based on what they're seeing the U.S. enforcement adjustments being. Like I would I would guess as our people adjust and maybe start to figure out one area, one sector, they then decide that there's now sort of an opening over here. So they start to move their operation in that direction. Is that at least plausible to you? It's absolutely plausible. And another thing we've heard is that these cartels and human smuggling organizations, they smuggle different nationalities at different parts of the border. So there are different cartels that obviously run different parts of the border. You got the Gulf Cartel down towards the RGV, you got the Northeast Cartel more towards the Del Rio area, and then you got the Juarez Cartel up here across from El Paso. Each of those cartels smuggle different nationalities. So, for instance, down in the Rio Grande Valley, we see a lot of the Northern Triangle folks. El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexicans. In Del Rio, we see a lot of Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans. Um, here in El Paso, we, we also see you know Cubans, Venezuelans, but there's also for some reason a lot of Turkish people showing up. Then you go over to you know Yuma, Arizona. You get Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Turkish people, some Chinese. They come in from all over the world. So different cartels have different sectors of the border, and the main people crossing right now are still those Cubans, Nicaraguans, Dominican Republic, and Venezuelans. And that's why the Del Rio sector and the El Paso sector have the highest numbers right now, because those are the main nationalities arriving at our border at the moment. 
What has Governor Abbott done just recently? I know that he has now shifted in some official capacity the state's posture toward all of this. I know some people are criticizing him. I've seen some hysteria out there that is factually wrong. Just quickly, Bill, if you would give us a primer on the latest moves of the state of Texas as the federal government continues to do or not do uh, what it should be doing. So Governor Abbott is formally issuing a declaration of invasion at the border, meaning he is invoking both the Texas and U.S. Constitution uh, in describing what's happening down here as an invasion. And as such, he is surging more Texas resources down here as part of Operation Lone Star, uh, which includes he's sending um, 10 armored personnel carriers, APCs, from the Texas National Guard down to the border, sending more Texas DPS, more National Guard. Um, In terms of actual action, we're waiting to wait and see. Some people want him to physically have Texas resources deport people. That has never happened in history. Under current law, it appears to be illegal. A lot of people are pushing for him to do that, but he has not done that so far in the state of Texas. It it appears legally cannot deport migrants themselves. It has to be the federal government who does that. But Texas keeps – escalating their response and he's getting a lot of pressure from especially you know their further right-wing folks to say you know the federal government's not doing anything it's time for texas texas troopers texas national guard to start taking people back to mexico themselves if they were to end up doing that that would obviously cause a huge legal fight with the biden administration massive battle in the courts and on the other side of the spectrum i've seen people arguing or freaking out that Texas is further militarizing the border and sending tanks down there or something, which is also inaccurate. And, of course, our conversation about this seems to be deeply broken and dysfunctional, just like the border itself. Last but not least, Bill Malugin, something that we're asking a lot of our guests this week in the lead-up to Thanksgiving, setting aside some of the very galling topics that you cover on a regular basis very well here at Fox As you take a step back, take inventory of the last year of your life since last Thanksgiving, are there one or two things that you were particularly grateful and thankful for in your life this year? Absolutely. The border teams that Fox sends down here with me make this job so much more enjoyable. And It is a lot of long hours, a lot of traveling, a lot of just sitting in the middle of nowhere, and the crews we have down here. Um, excuse my language, work their asses off and all have such a great work ethic and and attitude towards this where I'm seeing the same people 20 to 25 days a month for the last 17 months of my life. And everybody here wants to tell this story, wants to be here, wants to do this. We've got the resources to do it. And it's been an absolute pleasure, you know, working with everybody down here, despite how much work it is. But uh, it's what we're happy to do. Yeah, that's a really nice tribute. And we talk a lot about the Fox family. You've got your little offshoot of the Fox family down there under difficult circumstances, doing very important reporting that a lot of people just aren't doing for various reasons. Bill Malugin, we are thankful for you and your work, along with that of your whole team. We look forward to talking to you about this issue. Unfortunately, it's not going away. We'll do so after this holiday. Have a great one, Bill. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Guy. You and your family. Likewise. And the Guy Benson Show will be right back. It's the happy hour. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. And happy birthday wishes are in order to the president of the United States, of whom we are very often quite critical, deservedly so. But Joe Biden turned 80 years old yesterday. 
So congratulations to him. I hope they had a fun time. It's been a lot of celebration at the White House recently. They were celebrating a less bad than expected midterm election for the Democrats. Then they were celebrating, I believe, one of the granddaughter's weddings. She got married on the White House campus. That was a couple days ago. And then the president turning 80 yesterday. And I've read how the team there wasn't exactly sure how much they wanted to play up that birthday. Because on one hand, it's a big milestone. It's the president's birthday. On the other hand, 80 is not young. And talking about that age with the number eight in front of it is just a reminder of some of the things being said inside their own party and, of course, outside their party about the president. But here we're just going to say happy birthday, Mr. President. And also we have gotten actually our hands on some exclusive audio. The vice president of the United States was overjoyed at the president's birthday, and she put together a little recording for the president in his honor, and we have it here exclusively at The Guy Benson Show. Let's listen together. The president was reportedly delighted by this song, and he ate some ice cream as he listened to it. And she, by the way, keeps talking about Venn diagrams and buses. On and on it goes. Round and round it goes, in fact. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back here on the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour of today's program, we welcome back U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas. He's campaigning for Herschel Walker in that big runoff election down in Georgia. Here's part of our conversation with Senator Cruz. Why should people care about what happens in that Warnock-Walker contest, that runoff in a few weeks? Well, the Georgia Senate race matters enormously. Number one, if if we lose the Georgia Senate race, it means the Democrats will pick up an additional seat in the Senate. They will grow their majority from a razor-thin 50-50 to a 51-49. What does that mean? Well, Raphael Warnock is one of the most extreme liberal senators in the entire Senate. He is the senator who I think is most out of step with the values of the state he represents. The people of Georgia are not left-wing socialists. They're not uh, radicals who who engage in in division based on race, who embrace unlimited abortion up to to and including the ninth month of pregnancy, who want to take away your Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. They're not radicals who've embraced spending trillions of dollars that is driving massive inflation, driving record high gas prices. They're not radicals who, who want to see district attorneys, George Soros DAs, letting violent criminals go and driving up, uh, driving up uh, crime. They're not radicals who've undermined and demonized police officers the way Raphael Warnock has. But moreover, it makes a big difference whether the Democrats are at 50-50 or 51-49. If they win this seat, if the Democrats win this seat, they get a majority – on every committee in the Senate. Right now, the committees are evenly balanced. With a majority, they can ram through their destructive agenda much, much faster. But secondly, and this is critically important, Guy, the Democrats tried in the last two years to end the filibuster, to blow up the filibuster and lower the threshold to pass any legislation to 50 votes. 
They came two votes short. Only two Democrats said no. Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. If Democrats win in Georgia, that margin drops to one vote. And in my view, I think Joe Manchin will fold to Chuck Schumer. I think if we lose in Georgia, Chuck Schumer will blow up the filibuster, which means the Democrats in the Senate will have the votes to take over all federal elections, to strike down federal election integrity laws all across the country, to legalize millions of illegal aliens, to make the District of Columbia a new state with two new Democrat senators, and to pack the U.S. Supreme Court with four ultra-left-wing justices. Losing Georgia puts all of that on the table for Democrats in the Senate. Those stakes are horrifically high. The good news, of course, is that Republicans have won the House, so a lot of that would die on the other side of Capitol Hill. But you never know, Senator, and I think this is part of your point, what's going to happen two years from now. And giving even a single seat back to the Democrats to have their margin get a little bit better, that makes – I understand the map, the Senate map. This is maybe looking a little far ahead. But in 2024, things look much more favorable for the Republicans in the Senate in terms of who's defending what. But – Sometimes elections are unpredictable, as we just learned very, very recently. And to your point about cinema and mansion and barely holding the line on certain things now or in the future, that I think really underscores why every single seat, especially in the United States Senate, is so critical. And that's why I hope people listening to us right now, we have a large audience in Georgia, aren't just rolling their eyes or eyes glazing over and thinking like, okay, here we go again. I'm sort of tired of all this stuff. I, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic. It's exhausting. But they've got to keep their intensity going for December 6th because there is, despite what it might seem on the surface, there's a lot at stake here. Well, Guy, what, well, what I'll say is you've got to think like the radicals in the Democrat Party. If the Democrats win Georgia, I believe Chuck Schumer will blow up the filibuster. Why? You said, well, we've got a Republican House, so we can stop that. Look, the Democrats know they will get a majority again in the House at some point. And if they blow up the filibuster, when the Democrats have majorities, they use them. And and the changes they want to do are changes to permanently alter our democratic system to make it so that Republicans can never win again and so that Democrats are in permanent power. And the filibuster is the single biggest check on it. Georgia, I believe, is enormously important. It's worth noting. When the election happened on Tuesday, the next day, Herschel called, asked me to come to Georgia, do a rally with him. I did a rally the very next day. We had over 3,000 people come out. It was There was a lot of energy. There was a lot of excitement. Now where we are right now, I'm going to be there tomorrow night, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. at the Governor's Gun Club in Powder Springs, Georgia. And I want to encourage anyone in Georgia, come to the rally. I'm going to be there. Herschel Walker is going to be there. Lindsey Graham's going to be there, and we're going to be doing it live on Hannity with Sean Hannity, a live town hall. So if you're not in Georgia, watch it on Hannity tomorrow night. But if you're in Georgia, come tomorrow night. The rally is at 7 p.m. at the Governor's Gun Club in Powder Springs, Georgia. Senator Cruz, looking ahead to the next Congress, now we will have divided government, thank goodness, because it's been one-party rule for two years. It has not gone well. And now there's at least some check on what the Democrats are going to be trying to do. What do you think, realistically speaking, 
the Republican Party in both your chamber and also the lower chamber, what should Republicans try to do? What should they prioritize over these next two years as you now have you know, a, a president who will not have Democratic majorities in both houses? You'll have a Republican Speaker of the House with Nancy Pelosi stepping aside, and you will have either a 50-50 Senate or, as we're talking about, 41 or 51-49, depending on what happens in Georgia. These are such narrow margins all over the place. Strategically speaking, what do you think the GOP needs to do? Well, in the House of Representatives, I think we need real oversight. I think we need serious hearings with subpoenas investigating the policies from this administration that have inflicted so much harm on the American people, the billions of dollars of waste, fraud, and abuse as as they have spent money paying off their left-wing special interest groups, the the assault on American oil and gas production, which has caused gasoline prices to skyrocket, the, the, the cronyism and the favoritism, including, I'm very glad that the The House of Representatives is going to be investigating the connections between Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, and foreign nations that have paid the Biden family millions of dollars. And it's important to remember, those investigations are not about Hunter. If it was just one one tortured soul with substance abuse problems, that would not be a matter of public concern. The reason it is a public concern is the evidence is substantial that, that what occurred was official corruption of Joe Biden himself as vice president and now as president. All of those investigations are important. Then I think on top of that guy, we need to take up and pass positive pro-growth, pro-job legislation, legislation cutting taxes, simplifying the burdens on small businesses and job creators. My full interview with Ted Cruz, Republican senator from the great state of Texas, available at GuyBensonShow.com. That's the full interview there. You can also catch the whole show start to finish for free on our podcast. It's every day on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast. When we come back, the home stretch, a question or two for Christine, plus a tough night for my little puppy at home. We'll get to all of that straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. On the world of sports, I have to say, my beloved Northwestern Wildcats, college football, it is uh, ugly. Ugly. One and ten. The only win being in Ireland. The game in Dublin to start the season that I attended. We thought things might be really good this year after that one, beating Nebraska and then they've lost 10 consecutive games. In fact, they've lost 16 of the last 17 games that they've played. And they haven't won on U.S. soil since mid-October of last year, 2021. It is bad. So I'm just taking my lumps. Bleed purple, but man, some changes need to happen in Evanston. Meanwhile, I'm a big New Jersey Devils fan in hockey. They're playing really well. 12 consecutive wins for the young and exciting Devils. So that's great. I do, though, have to ask a different sports-related question to producer Christine because, as you may recall, in recent months, she has become fully enamored with NFL football, just a passionate, all-of-a-sudden, out-of-nowhere NFL fan. And this was a surprise to us after many years of ambivalence to hostility toward football. Something happened 
lightning struck. She became a fan. She was casting about for a team to support, and she was all excited about going to the Giants-Lions game at the Meadowlands in New Jersey this past weekend, just yesterday. And unfortunately for the Giants, I'm a Giants fan, although I'm not like a huge NFL fan. If I had to pull for any team, it's the Giants. They got beaten pretty soundly by the lowly Lions at home. Not a good look. Christine, were you at the game, which I know was your stated intention here on the air? I was not at the game. Oh, you weren't? Because you were talking about it, right? You asked Bobby to get tickets. I'm not hallucinating that, correct? Nope, nope. Huge fan. I mean, look how my line showed up. Huge fan. Um, You know, just scheduling. Uh, Things got in the way, unfortunately. But, you know, Mm. go Lions. Detroit. Although you had also said that you weren't a Detroit Lions fan because of how bad they were. So I'm not really sure if I'm buying this. I'm actually more curious, Christine, about this. Have you been watching football religiously these last few weeks? Is the is the thrill, is the burning passion still with us? I wouldn't say it's burning. You know, that passion may have just subsided just a little bit. But uh, Bobby mm. and I did go out to dinner last night. We were sitting at the bar eating and we were watching football. So we were watching the Cowboys game. And it, I mean, it, if I can sit down and watch a game, I'm still really interested and, you know, obviously I'm talking to everybody around me, you know, talking about the game. But, um, you know, like that where I remember I kept saying to you, I'm going to stay home on Sundays and watch every game with my husband. Yes. Yeah, no, that hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah, that's over. That's over. So I think when you told Bobby, hey, I love football now. Let's get Giants tickets. I think he probably smiled and said, OK, honey, and patted you on the head. And then kind of like a parent and a child, like where a child is obsessed with a toy, and then the parent knows that that excitement is just going to go away in a matter of weeks. He just sort of punted, so to speak, the purchase of tickets, knowing you quite well and assuming that your deep, profound interest in NFL football would just kind of peter out relatively soon and he wouldn't waste the money. And it seems like if that's what he did, it was a pretty smart fiscal move. So, yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. Bobby knows mm-hmm. I have like a, a, a two-week shelf life on things. And then, you know, just it fades away. Yeah, whether it's football, whether it's certain interesting toys or passion projects or whether it's being a class mom. I mean, it's like about two weeks is the extent of your interest that can be held. We're all learning this. I have to jump in here really quick. I can confirm her interest in football is still there because most Mondays she comes in and asks about, like, a handsome coach, and that's pretty much her answer. She's like, who's that guy from the Vikings? He's oh, very yeah. handsome. Yeah, that guy. Oh, my gosh. the He's like a young coach on the Vikings. What a cutie cute. Have you moved past your crush on the Rams coach, no. Christine, already? No, he's my number one, just in case he's listening. You'll always be number one. I don't even remember his name. What was it? Well, he kind of looks... He looks a tiny bit like Jimmy Fallon. You know, people say that. I don't know if I necessarily see that. But Our um, colleague here yeah. at Fox. He's yeah. kind of like Jimmy. I think Jimmy would say if he were a little bit more svelte, he could be a pretty dead ringer there. Huh. Yeah. Uh, that's, I, that's not me saying anything about Jimmy. Jimmy has made that exact point himself. I'm just noting that and also pointing out that you have a new football coach crush. Can add that to the list. Although in two weeks, probably just guessing, you'll have a new one. 
<laughs> so I just want to I just want to update the audience on your uh, really deep seated excitement about NFL football, which is I, I guess perhaps evolving into something a little bit different. Meanwhile, I did mention this right before the break, and I tweeted about it last night. Poor Roy, our dog, our little Bedlington Terrier. Adam's out of town for various reasons, family stuff with with the Thanksgiving holiday coming up. So I'm sort of in charge of the house and in charge of Roy, and everything was going perfectly fine until the furnace stopped working, and Roy started throwing up everywhere all over the house, and it seemed like he would find the whitest fabric surface to throw up on. He would just, you know, sort of walk around to find the least convenient deposit location and then do his thing. He had, I think, too much of a treat. He wasn't supposed to eat the whole thing. I think he ate the whole thing, and he's fine. He's much better today. But, boy, last night was not a pleasant experience where I had these, like, cleaners that I was spraying everywhere, and I I won't get into the graphic details, but the washing machine got quite a workout last night. The couch needed some scrubbing. The bedspread needed a lot of help. And I'm hoping that today will be less dramatic and less traumatic. And, Christine, is this, like, kind of what it feels like to be a parent? Oh, yes. But at least Roy wasn't screaming, crying through the whole thing. And he didn't get me sick because your daughter gets you sick seemingly any time you're like, Megan's under the weather. Two days later, you're like, oh, cookies, struggling. It is. You'll you'll see down the road. It is the worst because— Every time your kid gets sick, I would say 99% chance you're going to get something. I mean, it was even worse when she was little, when she first started daycare. I once got hand, foot, and mouth disease. Have you ever even oh, heard of that before? I have. It was I, I don't know horrible. exactly what that means, but I've heard of it. It doesn't sound good. You were just sick last week, and you're sounding better. I am. I am. This is a slow go, though. Um, I'm actually excited because I just booked Dr. Nicole Sapphire for tomorrow. And I, I, I have some questions for her because my husband's still sick. My daughter's still, you know, trying to get over it. This is we're going on weeks now. And I've heard about a lot of people out there. There's something going around and it is lasting a long, long well, time. I do wonder if given you and your proclivities, does it take two weeks to get over? Because you get over everything in two weeks. <laughs> it's so true. Back. If Bobby's listening right now, he would laugh because the running joke is Bobby cannot <laughs> believe he's still around. Yes, right. He's the one thing that has outlasted two weeks. Yes. Because you're in your second decade. I know exactly. It's like, is that, I mean, congratulations to you both, but it's like, congratulations, question mark to him. Oh, we love Bobby. Looking forward to seeing him down at the Christmas party. We hope. Although yep. I, I st- nope, we're going to be there. We're yep, we're both there. And just so you know, we can talk about this next week. But we're I'm back to co-hosting the party. We'll work out the details next week. Oh, happy day! Oh, happy day! Although I've also heard less happy day. There's some tension with Judgy Joyce, your mother, ahead of Thanksgiving. We don't have time for it today, but I think we need to get to that tomorrow. Especially now that I am. I think, once again, your only therapist because you have to break up with Roy, your current therapist, due to an insurance issue. So your unlicensed, uncompensated therapist will have to weigh in on this current stress that you're having, this issue with your mother related to Thanksgiving. I will enter it with an open mind. 
even though I generally side with Bobby and Judgy Joyce every time over you. We'll see what happens tomorrow, same time, same place during the home stretch here on The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. We will talk to you then. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.